digging in the dirt. I'm digging in the dirt. This is Digging in the Dirt with Kevin Gallagher, where Kevin and his guests dig a little deeper into today's issues surrounding the environment, climate change, farming, gardening, and food. My guest today on Digging in the Dirt is author David Pogue. He's here to talk to me about his new book, How to Prepare for Climate Change, A Practical Guide to Surviving the Chaos. It is definitely a practical and comprehensive guide to surviving the greatest disaster of our time, according to David. He is a New York Times bestselling self-help author and CBS Sunday Morning Science and Technology correspondent. And to boot, Mr. Pogue is a neighbor of WPKM because he lives here in Fairfield County. Welcome, David. Thank you so much. So, wow, where do we begin to start to discuss this over 500-page <laughs> book crammed with just about everything about climate change? It's crazy. You know, I would say we begin it uh, with the way the book begins, which is with a, a quote from uh, John Holdren, who is Barack Obama's chief science advisor. And because there's a hundred thousand trillion books about climate change, maybe I should we should start by saying what this book isn't. The quote is, we basically have three choices. Mitigation, which means trying to stop climate change, you know, drive an electric car and eat less red meat and fly less, that kind of thing. Adaptation, which is coping with what we have now and suffering. We're going to do some of each. The question is what the mix is going to be. That's what he said. So what I find interesting is that we've all heard the mitigation advice, um, try to reduce our carbon footprint, and that's really important to do. But nobody ever talks about the adaptation part of it. I mean, nobody. So, I mean, I couldn't find a single book on the subject or article. Uh, so that's what this book is. This is how to cope, how to make yourself, your house, your family more resilient with the assumption that climate change is here and it's not going away. You know, I, I, I agree with you. For our purposes, I, I don't think we have to spend a whole lot of time convincing this choir that there's a problem. So let's go right to how to deal with it and when we will have to deal with it. Because the subtitle of the book explains a lot. You firmly believe there's going to be chaos caused by the warming of the planet. And you're mainly worried about us surviving. So what are we surviving exactly? Well, the book covers, <laughs> as you noted, it's, it's 620 pages long. It covers everything that you can do to make yourself better positioned to withstand what's coming. So it's where to live and how to invest and how to insure, how to talk to your kids, what to grow in your garden, how to renovate your home. And then there's individual chapters on withstanding flood, hurricane, heat wave, wildfires, the Connecticut special ticks um, and, and so on. So the second half of the, of the book is sort of a, a case by case chapter project. And then the first half of the book is more how to make your life more resilient. Yeah, we're not going to get to all of it. So where do you want to key in on? What do you think is probably the most important thing you want to convey to the audience today? You know, I would say the, the thing that sounds the most boring, but the thing that will probably make you uh, the most secure is to look over your insurance. Uh, it's really not boring. I really, I really, I went nuts researching uh, insurance during during last summer when I was writing this thing. I, I, I should say I'm not an expert in any of the topics 
the cover, the book covers, you know, insurance, investments, and gardening. This whole thing was an exercise in reporting. Uh, I inter interviewed 55 experts on these topics, and they were they were fantastic. But it turns out that 40% of Americans, including many Connecticutians, uh, nutmeggers, I guess we are, uh, live in coastal communities, and only 18% of us have flood insurance. So 40% are sitting ducks for floods and 18% of them only have insurance. And so what, and part of that is that I think a lot of people don't realize that homeowners insurance does not cover flooding. Most people wake up rudely to find that to be true. So you really have to take out your, your old insurance policy, which you probably got a long time ago, tried to get something inexpensive, uh, but times have changed. So you really need to, to look over it and and see what's what. And I, after I mean, looking at your book, I did that yesterday. <laughs> did you really? <laughs> oh, yeah. It, and you know, here's the deal. My sister is a big muckamuck in the Michigan insurance industry. And she's constantly telling me about how the insurance industry knows there's climate change and doesn't want any part of it. They're, they're losing money hand over fist already yes. and trying to back out of a lot of the policies that they have, or, or at least telling people you're no longer covered. Yes, so true. I mean, that's that's why they're is no flood insurance by any of the big names anymore, Nationwide and Allstate and all those guys. They've all pulled out of insuring people for flood entirely because they, they were losing their shirts in all these hurricanes. And the same thing with wildfires, as you say, in California, they were dropping hundreds of thousands of customers because it's a, it's a losing business. It's, you cannot stay profitable if you're insuring, insuring people anymore. California now has a one-year moratorium on dropping customers. They're not allowed to do it while they try to regroup and figure out what's going to happen. But in the in the flood world, the only source of flood insurance, well, 95% of all flood insurance is from the government. They stepped in to help out with this thing called the National Flood Insurance Program. And now that's in trouble. They're $25 billion in debt. Their, their way of calculating your rates are hopelessly outdated and skewed because they don't take future flooding into account and they're not calculated by your property, right? It's based on your neighborhood. So anyway, so the, the whole thing is a mess. And my insurance experts were telling me an insurance company really has only three levers to pull in this new climate crisis era. They can drop customers, they can raise your rates, or they can just pull out of your state. And they're doing all three of those things to the extent that, you know, what will insurance be like in 10 years? It could just be a luxury for rich people and everyone else is just sitting ducks. Right. And I see that they've hired actuarians to, to take into consideration some of these variables for insurance too. And I think FEMA has been trying to raise the rates of these communities you're talking about in along the coastal line and in the state of New York, uh, Schumer has stepped in and says, oh, no, no, you can't raise the rates because he has a lot of coastal people who have properties along, uh, you know, up in the Hamptons and those places. Oh, that is exactly right. And that's why I said this, this gets so interesting. My wife jokes that I could monopolize a party conversation for two hours on federal flood insurance programs, <laughs> but it's, it's true. So exactly as you say, we all know that the national flood insurance program is, is a mess. So they have been working for years to revise how it works. By the way, another problem with it is 
they will never raise your rates no matter how many claims you file. It's not like car insurance where your, your rates go up every time you have an accident. So that's got to change. The rates you're paying now are way, mostly way below market rates. So they've been saying to Congress, let's fix this. Let's become a real insurance company. In October, they're proposing that to implement this new program called Risk Rating 2.0, which means your rates will be calculated according to the risk of your property. Imagine that. Mm -hmm. And the rates will be allowed to float up or down to what the market would bear. The problem with that, as Schumer is already indicating, is that for half the population, that means their rates are going to jump up and they'll be furious and they'll call their congresspeople. But for everybody else, they've been paying too much all this time. Their rates will drop and they'll be furious because you've been ripping us off for all these years. So Congress is understandably gun shy about the whole thing. And this is a classic case of why politics sometimes doesn't work. Yeah, it, it, it trumps the reason sometimes. I, I saw in North Carolina recently a community right on the beach, losing beach all the time, in fact, losing the road to get out to this little barrier island. And now they're raising the rate 60%. They wanted to raise it 100%, but couldn't do it. Oh, man. I mean, the, the obvious solution clearly is to go back in time and not build in the floodplain or in California and Washington and Oregon, not build where the forests are because that's the wildfire areas. But obviously it's been decades where nobody paid attention to that and developers developed and now we're, we're paying a serious price. It's just, it's come to the point where FEMA has bought 50,000 people's homes and then knocked them down. It's cheaper to buy your house and destroy it than to keep reimbursing you for flood damage. It's just, it's insane. It is. And isn't part of the problem too, is it what to insure? I mean, who wants to, who should insure a beach that it gets eroded every time there's a large storm? I mean, you've put, they want to put the sand back, but then the first big storm comes by and it's gone again. And then you just spend a few million dollars. Well, exactly right. It's just, I mean, remember after Katrina, there was all that conversation about maybe we sacrifice New Orleans to the ocean. It's, it's clearly not meant to be land. We built those dams and levees. We, we, I mean, the city of New Orleans is below sea level. So, of course, the minute the dam is overtopped or broken, of course, they're going to flood out. It's just... How do you rewind? Yeah. You know, in John Englander in his new book, Moving to Higher Ground, and Jeff Goodell, who's been on this program, he in The Water Will Come, they say, you know, it's it's adapt or flee. You know, it, I said to Goodell, I said, well, how can we mitigate this? He said, Kevin, my book is The Water Will Come. <laughs> and and uh, I mean, are you foreseeing the same thing? You, you wrote this book because I think you're telling people who live on the coast, you know, good luck with that. You know, it's, there's going to be a, a lot of changes coming. What What do you think? Twenty? Uh, yeah, for sure. I mean, John, John Englander was one of my experts for this book. So one of the most asked questions is about the chapter two, which is where to live. Obviously, very few people at this stage just say, I'm going to up and move because of climate fear. But increasingly, that is one consideration of several that drive people to decide where they're going to move, um, either because they're you know, getting out of school, getting out of the military, getting married, getting divorced, getting a new job, 
retiring, whatever it is. And, you know, especially in the, in the COVID era, when it was discovered that we could work from home and didn't have to go into the office today, there is a massive, well, well, Zillow calls it the great reshuffling because in 2020, 11% of the entire American population moved. It's just a stunning number of, of people moving. Marginal. And it's just going to accelerate this notion of moving away from dangerous places and into safer places. So let's talk about that, where to live. Um, you have what you call uh, climate havens. I mean, to put a spin on Horace Greeley, I think you would say, uh, go north, young man or <laughs> woman. <laughs> yeah, go. Well, actually, it's, it's north and inland. So you want to be... You want to get away from the East Coast because of the hurricanes and the ticks. You want to get away from the West Coast because of the, the wildfires and the drought, which nobody talks about. The, the whole West half of the country has been in more or less perpetual drought for a couple of decades. Uh, and you want to be North to get away from the blistering heat and the hurricanes and the, the chaos of, of alternating droughts and intense rains. So what that leaves you is the Great Lakes area. You know, the, the great old industrial cities are poised for a comeback. Cleveland and Duluth and Madison and Syracuse and Buffalo and, and so on. So those, those cities not only are amazing climate havens, but they have an unlimited supply of fresh water, which solves your drought problem. And they happen to be really low cost of living, lots of available room to grow, and great cultural amenities already, you know, airports and hospitals and sports teams and museums and, and recreation. So in the book, I identified 15 of these cities that are really attractive. And I have a dog in this fight. I'm, I'm going to be an empty nester in a couple of years. So my wife and I are kind of eyeing, I mean, both of us can work anywhere. So hmm, where what to does go. the country have to offer? Right. And you, you think a lot of people are going to be doing the same thing. So isn't that going to put pressure on someplace like Buffalo or Madison, Wisconsin, as you, as you pointed out? I, I would worry about that, except that most of those cities were designed, you know, during the 30s and 40s when they were big industrial towns and they have a lot of untapped capacity. So you will not have trouble finding room in any of those great old Great Lakes cities. We're talking to David Pogue. He's author and he's on CBS Sunday Morning Science and Technology Correspondent. So he's written a new book. It's very interesting, How to Prepare for Climate Change, A Practical Guide to Surviving the Chaos. And it is very practical. It's just, David, it's just chock full of really good information. I mean, you really did your homework. And <laughs> if you want to pick up, you know, one subject or another, you could go read the chapter for a while and get in, in, and bone up, like you said, on insurance or one subject I want to talk to you about now, and that's prepping. You know, I consider myself sort of a half-ass prepper. I've got myself the generator. I've got some water. I've got some things in the house, you know, so I don't have to leave if there's a big thing. What, what, tell us a little bit about your thoughts about prepping. Well, a couple of things that all climate disasters have in common, whether it's wildfire or flood or hurricanes, um, are loss of power and loss of water. Um, I, like many of your listeners, I lived through Hurricane Sandy. We lost power for six days. It was cold. We had no electricity, no internet, no TV, obviously. We lost all the food in the freezer and the refrigerator. And I had three little kids at the time. So like for a while, it was, 
oh, this will be cool. We'll, we'll play cards by candlelight and, you know, I'll make speeches about how lucky we are to live in this modern age. <laughs> and that lasted about an hour. <laughs> After that, it got old. So it was, it was not a fun time. Yeah, I was with you. I was eight days. And oh, eight days. Yeah, but I had a generator, so I did have some light and I did have some heat. So we did we did not have a generator, but we we got one shortly thereafter. Um, and you know what I learned from from the experience of getting a generator is that first of all, there's a a bunch of kinds. I I really didn't want this book to be you know how rich people can dodge climate disasters at the expense of poor people. That's not the idea. Because climate change, as we know, hits poorer communities hardest and sooner than rich communities. So, I mean, you for $15, you can get this really cool flashlight emergency radio hand-powered generator that can charge up your phone, your tablet, just you know, the basic stuff. For 250 bucks, you can go to Home Depot and get a regular gasoline generator. And that you can plug in heavy duty stuff into like your refrigerator, your lights and stuff like that. The, the trick with the, with the gas generators is that they're, they're kind of noisy and stinky and you have to keep them filled with gas or propane through the crisis. Right. And a lot of times gas and propane are sold out because everybody else is doing the same thing. Or the so, gas station doesn't have a, a generator and they're out of business because they have no electricity to pump the gas. That's ran, exactly that's right. What I ran or, up against. Right. Or they can't take your credit card because their computers are down because the power's out. So anyway, and then as you and I discovered, you know, the really nice thing to have is what's called a standby generator. That's that's the one that gets permanently installed. It's It's powered by natural gas. And my tip there is you don't need to have one big enough to power your whole house. I mean, these things cost, you know, $5,000, $10,000, $20,000. Right. So <clears throat> what we did is we just got a little one. It powers the kitchen so we don't lose all our food, one bedroom and one living room, you know, what, the living room. And so that way, you know, we're not going to freeze. We're not going to be bored out of our minds, but we don't need some massive monster generator either. Yeah, I didn't opt for that either. I have a I actually have a coupling in the side of the house where I can hook up a, fa a fairly large generator, but it didn't cost me what you said. It, it was reasonable. And it can, when I have a crisis, which is not that often, I can plug right into the side of the house and run, like you said, what I want to run. So exactly. That's something else somebody can consider. Yeah, exactly right. That's a great, a great point. Um, uh, and then the other thing that, that happens both in wildfires and floods and hurricanes is the water supply gets contaminated um, 700 American cities, I discovered, have a unified sewage and water runoff sewer system. So when you have heavy rains in, let's say, Chicago, you get raw sewage coming up from your drains. And that's because their water treatment plants at the lake get overwhelmed and water overflows the, the system and starts backing up. So obviously what the, what the old advice is, you know, fill up your bathtub before a storm so you've got something to drink. And I guess that's okay if you feel fine drinking out of your tub. Um, but the, the bottled water is going to sell out and it's very expensive and it's a disaster for the environment. So my point is you have water in the walls of your home already, like your water heater. You've got 40 or 80 gallons right there. 
already purified, ready to drink. So when the city water gets contaminated, you, you turn off the, the shutoff at the top and then you open the spigot at the bottom into a bucket, let it cool down and you've got clean drinking water. There's, Good idea. There's also um, three or four gallons in every toilet in your home. I'm, I'm not talking about the, the bowl unless you're a Labrador. Um, I'm talking about the, the tank. That is clean, unspoiled drinking water. And then if you have a, a two-story home or three-story home even, you have water in your pipes. And so what you do is you open the faucet on the top floor to let the, the, the air come in. And then you can pour out water on the lower floors, clean, fresh drinking water that you've already got. And all of that should tide you through until you can get city water again. Yeah, because it won't last forever. I, that, that's your point, I guess. And also, don't you think you should think about clean water so that you're not you know, surprised when you don't have it? Yeah, that's, that's a really great point. I mean, we don't, I can't give you the day that you're going to get hit by the next superstorm. I can tell you that it's going to come. So you may as well be ready for it. You know, the, the statistics are that a Hurricane Sandy sized storm in 1970 was expected to come along once every 500 years. By 2030, it's supposed to hit once every five years. Oh, no, so so it's that. coming. So yeah, so there are other things you can do. Home Depot sells these really ex inexpensive, giant plastic water tanks. And the FDA says that if you fill that thing carefully and don't you know, wash your hands and rinse the thing out with a bleach, diluted bleach before you do it, that that water can stay sealed and clean and drinkable indefinitely. I mean, yeah. five, 10, 20 years. So a lot of people have these tanks in their, in their basement. So they'll have a huge supply ready to go. During this program, I learned that kind of, so I had a guy on here from the, the uh, prepared.com. It's a, it's a nice site. I like it because it's not, you know, the zombie apocalypse, you know, <laughs> get into the bunker kind of guys, you know, they're just dispassionately talking about masks and water and a knife and things like that. So I like that site. And you can listen to that on my podcast too. It's called the prepared.com and really, really good guys. And they, that's why I have water in the basement because, yeah. of this, because of that yeah. interview. Yeah, exactly. No, I, I, I love that site. And I totally agree with you that I didn't want to get into like survivalist world right. where, you know, they're storing ammunition in the shed and, you know, they have a, a, a bunker to survive the apocalypse. That's, that's not really what we're talking about, but at the same time, those guys, <laughs> they were kind of smiling to themselves when COVID came along and you couldn't buy anything in grocery stores. Yeah, because they had it. They had it. Yeah. They've been like, we told you. Yeah, I, I forget. I think his name was John Stokes. He, he said that it doesn't matter what you think the catastrophe is going to be. You may think there's going to be a large volcano explode and that's going to cause you problems in your environment there out west, or it could be a hurricane. It doesn't matter what the catastrophe is. You be, should be ready for a catastrophe. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And I think you point that out in your book as well. Yeah, there, there's a chapter in there called Ready for Anything, which is the general prep you can do for any kind of disaster. And, and here's a free one I would love to offer anyone listening. There's a phone app from the American Red Cross. It's free, super simple to use, and it's just called Emergency. And it's so cool. You download this thing, you put in your address, you know, your children's address, your parents' address, whatever. And then you can forget about it, file it away in a folder on your phone somewhere. Don't think about it. 
But what breaks my heart is when these disasters come, you know, the wildfires or the hurricanes and people die in their homes because they never got the word to evacuate. I mean, that's that's unforgivable really? for society. So anyway, so what this thing does is it monitors 47 different kinds of disasters, both natural disasters and things like a chemical spill or a nuclear leak. And then it alerts you first thing with you know this big bleeping alarm. So it lets you be one of the first ones out of, of your home and instead of one of the last ones. It's a really great thing to have. And the other thing, the third thing, by the way, that all these disasters have in common is the cellular network goes down because that's powered by electricity and electricity goes out. So the other thing that I'd recommend that everybody do is just some night this week over dinner, sit down and discuss with your family, what would you do if cell service went down and you were at work and your kids were at school and everybody was scattered? Like, where would you meet up if you couldn't communicate? Decide now say, oh, it'll be the mailbox at the corner, or, you know, we'll meet at the, at the library in town, whatever, but just have an idea of how you'll meet up and put that in the notes app of your phone and tape it to the fridge and put it in your glove compartment because three years from now, you'll have forgotten, but have the conversation. It's a great thing to, to have. You'll, you'll sleep better at night knowing you've put some thought into it. Yeah, we're talking to David Pogue. He's written a great book full of this kind of advice on all different levels. I mean, it's quite comprehensive. It's called How to Prepare for Climate Change, A Practical Guide to Surviving Chaos. I mean, I'd like to talk to you about ticks because it's such a problem in Connecticut. Maybe a brief thing on ticks? <laughs> I don't <laughs> because, think I'm I mean, capable. why is that in a book about climate change? <laughs> Yeah, I don't think I can speak briefly about ticks. This is another one of my favorite topics. So it's a pro it's a problem with climate change because as the winters get milder, the deer that ticks ride on are spreading farther north, and there are fewer and fewer natural predators to hold down their numbers. So they don't the the winters are not killing off deer or ticks or mosquitoes the way they used to. So we're getting exploding numbers of ticks in the eastern and northern parts of the country. And with that, cases of Lyme disease. Uh, the CDC thinks it's about 300,000 cases a year. Um, it's a disease you really, really don't want to get. It's, it's hard to define. It's hard to test for. It can last you your whole life, leaving you exhausted and joint pain and mental fog and so on. Um, so the best thing is not to get the, the disease in the first place. So you get this from the certain kind of tick, um, but there's all kinds of great news if you simply are aware of what the great news is. So I will, I will tell you right now. First of all, you can't get Lyme disease unless that bug has been embedded in your skin for at least 12 hours, probably 24 hours. So if you can get that thing off after your walk relatively soon, you won't get Lyme disease. If you get antibiotics soon after you get infected, you can get yourself cured for good. That is something else you don't need to worry about. Also, people say, oh, these ticks are like sitting on the tree branches waiting to watch for something to walk underneath and then they jump down. No, they can't jump, they can't fly, and they can't see, they have no eyes. <laughs> so what they do is they stand at ground level on their hind legs and they reach up with their front legs to grab onto anything passing by. And if that's you, that's, that's bad news. The usual advice is wear long pants tucked into your socks, 
let's not kid ourselves. Nobody's going to dress like that in the summer. So the solution is bug repellent. Put on something with DEET. It's very safe. It's not a poison or anything. It's just It just smells bad to the ticks and the mosquitoes. It works great. And then to be extra sure, when you come home from your walk, throw your clothes in the dryer because ticks require 82% humidity or more. So the dryer will kill anything that's in your clothes. And while you're standing there naked, just look over yourself. Look, look in your hairy bits, make sure there's nothing on you. Uh, if you find one, pluck it out by the head with a pair of tweezers and you are, you are safe. So it's an entirely avoidable problem if you just take a few simple steps. Good advice. So now with something I'm concerned about, having a, a four-year-old grandson and you know adult children now, I mean, what do we do about managing our anxiety and our children's anxiety? That's something you address in the book too. It's, are you, you have three children. You, let's let's use, use an example. What are you worried about? What are you telling your kids? Well, I have to say I did exactly the wrong thing. I tried to minimize this discussion of the problem. I tried to, you know, conceal the news. And I talked to five child psychologists for this book, and they told me to a woman that that was exactly the wrong approach. Kids already know. They, they're getting it from YouTube. They get it from school. They know what's going on with the world. And if you are minimizing it and acting like there's nothing wrong, that'll only terrify them more because like, why aren't you talking about it? So you need to be straight with your kids about the problem. You can, you, you should absolutely tell them the truth about what's changing. You know, we just elected a president who cares about climate change more than just about anything. And he's got all the world's best scientists working on the problems. And, you know, there are things we can do as a family to make the, the problem better. Let me show you. And you take steps. I mean, one of the things in the, the first chapter of the book, which is about coming to terms with eco-despair yourself is that depression is not defined just as you feel like your situation is terrible it's you find you feel like your depression your situation is terrible and you're helpless to change it that's what depression is so anytime you can take control take steps take preparation for what you fear you are addressing your own anxiety you, you will feel better you will sleep better at night so that's true both of yourself and for your family. Take steps now to prepare. You'll feel like you've taken some control. Let the kids know that there is a problem. Let the be honest about the problem and be honest about this, the solutions and what's being done. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't know if I missed it or not. Maybe you didn't address this in the book. And that is, you're a, a media personality. You're, you're, you're doing a lot for mass media, what we call CBS. What about the media's responsibility in all this about, you know, not really addressing how severe the problem is? I mean, you have already come to the conclusion that we have a major problem and that you're going to have to prepare for this climate change. The only person that over the years that I've seen questioned is Al Roker on, as a weatherman. What do you say about the TV weather person who never makes that connection between 80 degree week in December or the, the big storm and why it came or something they, they'll say, oh, that's an atmospheric river, but never what caused the atmospheric river. Yeah, thoughts? It's, it's, it's interesting because, um, you know, for a long time, the media blew it. This is not a, a brilliantly original observation I'm making here, but the media felt an obligation to represent, represent quote, both sides mm -hmm. of the quote debate 
about climate change. You know, they they if they discussed a climate change, they would have to have a climate change denier on to balance it out. I think that era is now over. I, I actually think that the number of people who are climate change deniers is vanishingly small these days. I mean, no no one can really say that nothing has changed. I mean, you know, a, a freak blizzard in, in Texas in the spring, what? I think nowadays there are people who say, yeah, 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 things are changing, but it's part of a natural cycle. The world has always heated and cooled. It has nothing to do with human activity. But the Yale Center for Climate Communications does a poll of Americans twice a year on their attitudes toward this stuff. And in the most recent one in December, the number of people who say this is a natural cycle is down to 29%. That's been dropping by 5% every time they do the survey. And you know, in this polarized environment, anything better than 50% is a, is a win. Uh, please remember that 20% of Americans think that aliens walk among us. So <laughs> for comparison. So, and, and most kids feel they're zombies. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. That's right. But, but to your, to your point, um, now I think we're in this, this um, sort of sloshing uh, latency period where the science and public opinion has pretty much settled down, but the media and the common notion of what the common notion is, is taking time to respond. And what I mean by that is most people still think it's a 50-50 proposition that half the population is still deniers. The word hasn't gotten out that people now pretty much all agree. And I think that's where the media is now, whether people are still probably a little afraid to say this is the climate crisis in action because they still fear that half their audience will object. It, it isn't true, but that's what they think. And you don't think it's also corporate sponsorship too? Some of these companies that are doing the pollution and causing the problem are their sponsors. It, it has been for a long time. I, I really feel like in the last two years, the tide has turned for what, what corporations think. 250 major corporations, I mean, big ones, global companies have now taken sustainable energy pledges within five years or whatever it is, they will be carbon neutral. They, they've, been getting, they've been under pressure, both from the public and from the investment community. I mean, investors really don't like polluting companies and companies who are themselves sitting ducks for climate change and from employees. I mean, two years ago, Amazon didn't have any climate program at all. And the, the employees basically had a mutiny. And now they have this really aggressive thing. They're spending $10 billion on climate science and buying all new electric delivery vans. And they're building solar and wind farms and, and so on, all because of, of pressure. So I, I do feel like the corporate thing is also turning around in, in a big way. My guest is author David Pogue. He's here talking about his new book, How to Prepare for Climate Change, a practical guide to surviving the chaos. Since we're talking about responsibility, what about corporate responsibility? There's still, maybe they're not denying it, but they're delaying and diffusing, as Michael Mann says, you know, and some people are thinking that environmental destruction of the planet could be a crime against humanity. I mean, there's, I don't know if we want to go that far, but I mean, how far do we let this go before we start taking drastic measures? Yesterday, Hawaii 
came out and said that they're the first state to declare an environmental state of emergency. What are you thinking about all this? My, yeah, Michael's, Michael Mann's new book takes takes the stance that, remember the, the bottle bills of the 70s and the 80s and the famous Indian teardrop commercial? Mm-hmm. Who knew that the Indian teardrop commercial was put out by an alliance of plastic and beverage can makers and the whole idea was to make it seem like our fault that there was pollution, not the, not the corporations, but we as citizens. And he argues that that's what's going on with climate change by saying, you know, take public transportation and, and don't fly. They're trying to make it seem like we can take control of this problem to shunt attention away from their own activities. Um, but again, I really feel like that's, that's changing. There's this really cool website called the Carbon Disclosure Project or cdp.net. And what it is, is a place for the corporations of the world to give honest assessments of how bad they are as polluters and how vulnerable they are to climate change. In other words, like all the cruise companies are headquartered in Miami. They are screwed. <laughs> and a lot of airlines are, 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 are based in Miami. Big problem, too, so. yeah, big problem. So they're, they're in trouble. And that's what you would find out by reading their reports on cdp.net. cdp.net is an investor tool. It's for these hedge fund managers and investors to see just how vulnerable these companies are. So there's a lot of honesty going on there and a lot of changing tides. The site gives these companies a grade, A through F. And just one last thing on this, sure, this sure. point. I, I agree with a lot of experts that the, the way we're really going to solve this is with some kind of carbon pricing scheme where, uh, I mean, that's how we solved the, the acid rain problem, right? With a cap and trade program. So this could be a tax on carbon pollution. It could be every company is, is issued an amount they're allowed to pollute. And if they become better citizens, they can sell the, the, the remainder of their allotment to other companies. One of the programs, this bipartisan program founded by Republicans and Democrats takes the money that these companies would pay in pollution taxes and give it to us, put it right in our bank accounts. I mean, can you imagine that would be immensely popular with the voters and a huge incentive for companies to clean up their act? So obviously this is a big political pill to swallow, some kind of carbon pricing scheme, but that's why investors really want to know how much these companies are polluting because the day that law passes, their entire portfolios could implode if they're heavily invested in, let's say, airlines. So a little bit more corporate responsibility. Yeah. A lot more. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I guess what I'm saying is there are market forces already at play forcing these companies to start cleaning up. My biggest concern is that it's not quick enough. That's all. We got to move on this. Yeah, we're, we're 40 years too late. Yeah, I've been watching this slowly. It's like that old tired analogy of the, the frog in the water, turn on the heat and then keep increasing it. And then sooner or later it's cooked and we're getting to the stage we're going to be cooked here. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I mean, the, the one problem that I have with the, with the common uh, question of like, are we too late? And the IPCC's diff- different scenarios is that it's, it's a spectrum. 
I mean, it is too late and it's not too late. You know, right. it, it, I agree with what that. we're trying to avoid is the worst of the projections. Right. We're never going back to the weather of the 80s. It's, it's gone. I won't see it. My children won't see it. Your grandchildren won't see it. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean it's going to be this hellscape of, you know, wildfires and people scrabbling for food and, and so on. I mean, there's, there's a lot that we can still head off. Yeah. It doesn't have to be that way. Yeah. Yeah. So it gets us to your last chapter here, which is called where to find hope. And it looks like it's going to be a whole different world. And you know, in the next few years, I mean, especially about 15, 20 years out, and then it's especially 30 years out or the end of the centuries is so what can you tell us about being hopeful in face of this not so optimistic prognosis? I mean, the, the, the big one is that everybody's looking at the US and China to see what we're going to do because we are the two biggest polluters. And China, the president has said they intend to be carbon neutral by 2060. I mean, we'll see, but that's what he said. And we have just elected a president who talked about climate, climate, climate in every speech and debate he ever gave. And he is spending, as you know, trillions of dollars and surrounding himself by the greatest minds in the industry to make this happen and to make it equitably. So I would say there's a lot of hope in that. The the opposition, of course, says that going green, decarbonizing is going to be a, a job problem. It's going to put people out of work. I think we still don't know that. Already, the solar industry employs more people than the entire coal industry. So it's not necessarily certain that this means people out of work. It means people shifting jobs. That's for sure. It means we'll need retraining, but it doesn't mean a net loss of jobs. I think that's what the Biden administration is counting on. And you know, the other thing, and I've mentioned how the corporations are starting to turn around, but the other thing we really haven't talked about is, you know, Kevin, you and I are going to die out. If you look at what the next generation cares about, if you look at the demonstrations and the school strikes and the, what the younger candidates for office talk about, they care a lot. They will not stand for the status quo to keep going the way it is. So eventually, the, the entire thing is, is going to flop on its belly and decarbonize. I, it might take 80 years. But I don't think there's any question, especially with the price of solar crashing like it is. I mean, people thought it would take another 100 years for solar to get this cheap. And it's ridiculously cheap. It's cheaper to build a solar farm than to keep running a coal plant that already exists. I mean, that's where we are now. Yep. So the that, there's people. a lot happening. And the coal, ma- coal miners have all agreed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, David Pogue, author of uh, How to Prepare for Climate Change, I really appreciate you coming on Digging in the Dirt with me. It's been a really great conversation, and it's a, a great book. I mean, it's a great resource. I think I'll you know, be referring to it quite a bit. Uh, you know, you, you can't take it all in at once. You'll go back and, you know, I got this question about this particular area, and, and I'll go there and, and check out the book again and again. Well, you're, you're very kind, and, and I'd, I'd just like to make a uh, quick offer to anyone who's listening, because we're socially distanced. I can't very well autograph your books at a signing, but if you like, if anyone would like to, anyone who gets the book, I'll be happy to mail you 
a book plate. It's a, it's a glorified autograph sticker. I'll, you know, personalize it to you and, and mail it to you in an envelope. I mean, I'll, I'll send that right out to you. Sounds great. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much. Digging in the dirt. Digging in the dirt. You've been listening to Digging in the Dirt with Kevin Gallagher. To hear past programs anytime you want, visit the podcast section of WPKN.org or diggingindedirtradio.com.